Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning here. Uh, as we begin, I just want to say something here. If you have at least a couple of these symptoms, uh, you need to get medical attention quickly. And I'll just give them to you. If you've got some sort of like sensation where you have like this crushing feeling in your chest or you're sweating uh, and it doesn't seem to stop or you've got some pain extending like in your left arm or in your left jaw or if you are like nauseous, vomiting or you're having a shortness of breath or you've just got this like chest discomfort and it doesn't seem to go away, if you have a combination of those factors, you need to get medical help now, right? You need to know that these are the emergency symptoms of a heart attack, right? And we understand that uh, like if you're having a combination of these uh, factors, getting medical attention within a couple hours, it might help... Uh, you to overcome some of the damage that is being created. And we understand that, you know, it's important to take care of your heart, right? You need to exercise, right? You need to eat healthy. We, we at least know these things in our mind. And we also are familiar with these emergency symptoms of a heart attack. We, we know these things because our physical heart is important. But you know, even more important than your physical heart is your heart for God and his people. Who you really are, your inner being, your will, your affections, your understanding, your reason, your heart, the essence of who you are is even more important than your physical heart. Did you know that the Bible actually has almost a thousand different references to heart? It's, it's everywhere because your heart is so critically important. And I'd like to just ask you, how is your heart. And you're like, well, I mean, how do you even know like how your heart is? Like, how do you even assess the condition of your heart? Well, that's why Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, the passage we're going to look at today is so vitally important because this passage actually will help us understand how our heart really is. And I'm, this morning, I just really want to present it to you in three questions as we find them, as we make our way through this passage. If you want to know how your heart really is, the first question you need to ask is, well, how do you respond to Jesus? So take a look at this scene here. Jesus is teaching. The crowds are gathered. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here we have a lawyer, a scribe. As we saw even last week, they're highly esteemed. These were the masters of the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law. They also were the ones that uh, dealt with all the judicial affairs in the people of Israel. They were very learned in the law. They understood the Old Testament. But unfortunately, they actually spent most of their time studying the traditions of the elders and of various rabbis and even saw where they would conflict. And so they were experts in the minutiae, okay? And so these people, highly esteemed, very valued, understood the law. Well, all of a sudden, you've got one of these scribes while Jesus is teaching and everybody is seated and listening to him. All of a sudden, 
you got one guy standing up, a scribe. People would immediately start recognizing him. Like, that guy, that's one of the scribes. That's one of the warriors. And he's going to throw the gauntlet down. He is testing Jesus. You see that verse 25? He is going to put Jesus to the test. This is a challenge to a theological duel, per se. And so he fires off and he makes this statement here. He asks him this question here. Do you see that? Verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life is a synonym for entering the kingdom of God. And that is how the Jewish people understood eternal life is to enter the kingdom of God. But I want you to know that the scribe, he's smart and he's clever and he is really going to put Jesus to the test. Now, it was common for people to actually have public discourse and dialogue with a rabbi in the appropriate settings. And actually, this question that he asked about eternal life was a common question that was featured to be presented to rabbis. And and part of the Jewish culture is that you had traveling teachers, rabbis. Jesus functions like one of them. However, he is very, very different. And so this scribe puts Jesus to the test. And he asks him a question that's really, um, it's loaded. It's loaded for two reasons. First of all, notice what the question is. What do I do to inherit eternal life? You do nothing to inherit something, right? If you inherit something, you, you got it by virtue of the fact that you're alive, right? And see what this, this scribe is doing? He's like, hey, what are the things that a person needs to do? do in order to inherit eternal life. You see, the Jews all thought, hey, guess what? We're all going into the kingdom of heaven by virtue of the fact that we are related to Abraham, right? It's family. We're in the lineage. It's automatic. And yet, he's saying, what is it that we need to do? But the second reason that this is such a loaded question is this actually goes head-to-head with what Jesus was saying about eternal life and entering into the kingdom of God. Jesus, on multiple different occasions, and this created quite a stir. It's back why the scribes and the Pharisees and the uh, Jewish establishment was so very much against Jesus. It's because Jesus didn't abide by their system of laws and rules. In fact, Jesus would take known sinners people that either uh, needed forgiveness of sins or were suffering from some sort of evil effect of sin, and he would tell them that they were forgiven or they would be, were entering the kingdom of God by virtue of this one reality, their faith that they believed in him and what he was saying. And I want you to know the scribes and the Jewish establishment They did not like that at all because all of a sudden that put them at odds with what Jesus was saying. You see, the Jewish leaders had for some time disconnected themselves to the fundamental truths about the kingdom of God. And this was driven to the forefront when John the Baptist, the forerunner, the prophet that went before the Messiah, he had one message, repent For the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. By the way, that's how Jesus began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
John presented, you need to be broken over your sin. This whole idea where you're just automatically in the kingdom of heaven, you automatically have eternal life by virtue of some sort of blood lineage? No. You've got to have a brokenness over sin. You have to have a genuine faith in God. And I want you to know, that was not going to work for the scribe and his ilk. You know, you see, this guy, he's not a seeker. He's a scoffer. He lacked humility. He wasn't teachable. He saw himself as the authority, and he's going to take Jesus on. And really, just by virtue of how he behaves and what he says, reveals a lot about his heart. You can learn a lot about your heart by how do you respond to Jesus. And how do you respond to Jesus? Is your response to Jesus one of commitment? Or is he kind of like a curiosity? Like, you know, I'm kind of interested in Jesus. Certainly said some interesting things, miracles. It's the whole idea of the resurrection. Curious. Not sure I want to follow or anything like that, but it's a curiosity. Or like this guy, contempt. How you respond to Jesus is going to tell you a lot about your heart. Let me give you another question that will help you understand the true condition of your heart. And that is, how do you respond to truth? Well, you got to see, man, everything is, all the attention is on Jesus and this scribe, man. Everything is stopped. Here they are. And what is Jesus going to do with this trick-loaded question? Well, pretty interesting. Look at verse 26. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? This is what a master insightful teacher would do. Would turn the question into a question to help explore what does the man really know? And Jesus does just that. He says, well, how does the law read to you? This man is an expert in the law. He has given his life to the study of the law. And so Jesus is going to probe, well, tell me, what is it that you really know about the law? How does it read to you? Notice what Jesus does. He points him to the the scriptures. He doesn't say, well, hey, what is your best thought on the issue? Or what is the tradition of the elders? What, What do they think? No, what does the scripture say? Friends, I want you to know that is the most important question you can ask when you're facing the questions of life. What does the scripture say? Romans chapter 4, verse 3. You might want to write it down because that's exactly what it says. What does the scripture say? And in this case, he says, And Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. What does the Bible have to say is the absolute foundation for our faith. It's not the scripture and tradition, scripture and, hey, this is the cultural trends and this is where the world is going today. And so we, we've got to combine the two and, and we'll amalgamate that. No, 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 no. It is what does the scripture say? And so Jesus finds out, what does it say? Now, our Lord sends him back to the law not because the law saves us, but because the law actually reveals just how much we need to be saved. It is God pointing the way, this is how to live, and at the same time, it shows us our inability to do so. And so he says, well, tell me, 
what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so he answers, verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Well, he is he was ready. He had actually given a lot of thought to this. And notice he begins quoting with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This this is something that like would be this is bread and butter verse. In fact, the entire passage was something they was well known. But he also adds that you're also to love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. That wasn't as commonly known. But the reason that all the Jews knew about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, like he's quoting here, is because in the morning prayers, all Jewish men would take what is called a phylactery. It was a leather black box, and it had a strap to it. And they had two of them. One, they would strap it to their forehead. It's called a phylactery. And the other phylactery, they would wrap on their left arm, and they would have that box there. And each one of these boxes had four scripture passages. Exodus 13, 1 through 10, 11 through 16, and Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is where that passage is about loving the Lord your God with everything, and 11, 13 through 21. Every morning, they would actually have this on their head. The word phylactery actually means safeguard or protection. That's what the Greek word means. And the Jews literally were following what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 68. They, God intended them to understand this is to be a way of life. They turned it into something literal. That's why they actually put these boxes on their forehead and their left arm where it says, you shall bind my words as a sign on your hand and those shall be as frontals on your forehead. So this idea of loving God with your whole being, he got it. It's something he thought about every day. Your entirety, heart, your convictions, your soul, who you are, your immaterial person, your your mind, the fullness of your mind, fully engaged in loving God, all of your strength. He understood that. In fact, that was something he prayed. But what was not as commonly known is about loving your neighbor as yourself. It shows that this scribe had given a lot of thought to the answer to the question he presented to Jesus. And notice what Jesus said, verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus affirms, you know what? You have answered correctly. And he says, do this. In the Greek, this is a present imperative, do this. It means you should always do this. This is a ongoing lifestyle pursuit. You were always loving God with the entirety of your being, and you were always loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you do this, you will live. And I want you to know, that scribe, he's like immediately picking up what Jesus is saying, like, wait a second that is an impossibility. Is Jesus, is Jesus saying that you just need to keep the law? Do this and you will live. Is that how we receive eternal life? Is that how we enter in the kingdom of God? We just follow the law? Well, I want you to understand what it means to love God. If you love God, 
It means that you actually have faith in him. You are trusting in him. You obey him. It's the word agapao. It's not just I have affections for God, so like I have an emotional moment and I'm loving God, but it is a love as an expression of one's will. Just like you love your children, right? Or you love your spouse or you love your family members, not because they're always lovable, not because the emotions are always there, right? But you have made a commitment. It is a commitment of your will. And so we are to love God when the emotions are there, like at a worship service like this, or when we're facing great difficulty and all sorts of challenges. And Lord, I love you. I believe in you. I am trusting you. I will obey you, even if I don't fully understand. You see, there is a high degree of association between love and faith. You see, God never intended us to be saved by the law, but what does the law do? It shows us our need for the Savior. You need to know there is no conversion apart from conviction. There is no true conversion becoming into a real relationship with God and Christ apart from conviction of sin. This whole modern-day notion that you just have some emotional experiences and someone whipped you up into a frenzy and you had some nice feelings about God and that makes you a Christian, that's not New Testament Christianity. There is, with every true conversion, there is a conviction, a brokenness over sin, and that's what the law does. In fact, I'll give you a Bible verse on it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. God showing the way. In this case, loving the Lord God with everything in your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is anybody doing that like 100% of the time? Please. Well, please stand up because we're going to give you a standing ovation. Anybody doing it? Okay. Some of you are putting your heads down like, no way. Right? Of course we fail there. What does this show? It shows our need for the Savior. You know, what the law demands, the gospel produces in us. And this scribe knows that all of a sudden, in just one statement, Jesus has completely flipped the tables on him. And so he wants to justify himself. Take a look at it. Verse 29. He's like, you got to be kidding. Everybody's now looking at him. And so verse 29, by wishing, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want you to know he knows that he's caught. This, this word neighbor, it literally means the one who is nearby. But the Jews had changed the meaning to this. The one who is like me, like us. Who is nearby. And by that change of definition, all of a sudden they would only be neighborly to those who were Jews like them and folks like uh, Gentiles, non Jewish people, uh, folks like prostitutes, tax collectors, and those Samaritans, the folks that lived up north. Remember, uh, Assyria had come in, 722 BC, hauled a lot of them off, all these Jewish people, and then brought in folks from all over the world, and they kind of mixed, intermixed them with these Jews there, and they had a hybrid religion, and they were all kind of like mixed race. I want you to know, racially, ethnically, morally, religiously, man, they like the Jews, like, we want nothing to do with you. They hated them. 
Why, those aren't our neighbors, even if they are close by. In fact, by their new definition, they thought they were actually doing the right thing by hating those who are not their neighbors by their definition. Hence, they despise them. In fact, this feud with the uh, Samaritans, it began in 6th century B.C. This man goes, hey, wait a second here. Who is my neighbor? You know what he's doing. He's using that great tactic that's used in debates. When you're caught, you say, hey, wait a second here. Um, Define your terms. What do you mean by neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And that's exactly what he does. You see that? He wants to what? Vindicate himself, justify himself. See that verse 29? And he said to Jesus, and, well, wait a second here. Who is my neighbor? You see, his response to the truth reveals a lot about the true condition of his heart. Let me ask you, how do you respond to truth? How do you respond to the truth of God's word? Are you finding that it is your conviction and that you are convicted by it? Or is it just a consideration? But, you know, I've got my own truth and these people have some truth for the here. And what about some other like religious writings? You know, maybe it's all. And so I'm going to take the truth of scripture as a consideration. Is it your conviction, your beliefs, your values, or is it a consideration? Your answer to that question about truth is going to tell you a lot about the condition of your heart. There's one other question. If you really want to know how is your heart, ask and answer this question. How do you respond to people? Well, this scribe, man, he knows he's caught. There is no way he could do what Jesus has to say. So he throws out a last-ditch attempt to justify himself. And in verse 29, he asks, and who is my neighbor? Now, what Jesus is about to say is going to give a story. It is not listed by Jesus as a parable. It very well may have happened. In fact, what Jesus is about ready to say is something that occurred on a pretty regular basis, and everyone would know about it. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but take a good close look at what Jesus says, verse 30. And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So the Jesus tells this story about a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's only 17 miles long, but it is extremely steep. In fact, the drop from Jerusalem to Jericho is 3,300 feet. It is narrow. It is desolate. There's really no vegetation to speak of. There's all these cliffs. There's large boulders. It is a narrow, perilous journey. And because it was so, and it was so heavily traveled, robbers, criminals, would try to take advantage if they thought they could overpower an individual or a small group of people, and they would rob them. And there was a lot of traffic. Herod had built one of his palaces at Jericho. Uh, this was uh, actually in history. Lots of palaces had been built there. Herod had a really nice palace. Many of the Jewish religious establishment lived in Jericho. And so this thoroughfare, though it was rough and though it was dangerous, was traveled all the time. 
They understood it. In fact, it was so dangerous for centuries. It had been known as the path of blood. You know why? Because a lot of blood was was shed on that 17-mile journey. And so Jesus talks about a scenario that they would be familiar with. In fact, maybe it had recently happened and people were talking about it. There was this man. He's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him. Why would they take his clothes? Because most people didn't have a second set of clothes. Garments were valuable. If you got a closet full of clothes, you would be considered extremely wealthy. They'd strip him down because someone could use a change of clothes. And notice they beat him. They basically left him half dead. In fact, that's what they says. They left him away half dead. You get the picture. I mean, pulverized. Maybe you got a bone sticking out, blood everywhere, broken teeth. And this guy is down, whether he's groaning in pain or maybe he's even passed out. And he is in really rough shape. No one would want this to happen. This was so much, this was a familiar scene. And this would be something they would dread. This would be the thing that they'd most want to not ever experience. And this man had. But then Jesus introduces hope. Verse 31. And by chance... A priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So all of a sudden, a priest, whoa, someone from the religious establishment. Now, the priests were Levites, but they were of the family and line of Aaron, the very first high priest. And it was the priest that actually uh, covered all of the sacrificial system. They were responsible for making sure that the religious life in Jerusalem was supposed to be infused with the scriptures. They were the guardians of it. They were also those who were kind of like the health inspectors, especially for leprosy. They were highly esteemed, very valued. And this priest, he's coming from Jerusalem, meaning that he likely had temple service, that he was working at the temple. He's done And he sees this guy all bloodied and groaning. Now, if you're saying, well, he would want to be concerned about ritual impurity, well, think about it. His work at the temple's done. No, that's really not a consideration. And like Jesus says, you know, this priest saw him and he passed by on the other side. He just wasn't going to deal with this. Nope, not for me. Likewise, verse 32, a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So here we have a Levite. So these also are uh, in the line of the, the, the line that actually took care of all the temple work, but they were those who assisted the priests. They were involved in all the liturgical things. They still were very valued and, and very esteemed, but they had they were involved in secondary matters and that was just their role. They understood it. They had a lot of benefits from being Levites. And so though this Levite, he's making his way and, and people are thinking, well, surely this guy's going to help out, right? And he sees that man. Ooh, what a, ooh, nasty. And he walks on by. He's going to have nothing to do with this. I want you to know the people listening to this are like, whoa, Are religious authorities so callous, cruel, and unmoved? You know, I want you to know that behavior like this is a lot more common than we might care to admit. Things like this happen actually pretty regularly. And you might be surprised. Let me give you an incident like uh, Wichita, Kansas, July 2007. 
There was a young woman by the name of LaShonda Calloway. She was there at this convenience store, and she was stabbed repeatedly. She was completely innocent. I guess she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. She goes down on the ground. They have the cameras, and so they actually have been able to watch the tape of all that happened here. But uh, you know what happened before LaShonda died? Why, people shopping at the convenience store, trying to get their snacks, saw her. Some of them actually stepped over her. Now, one of the five that they had on camera actually did stop, so I want you to know that, uh, but only to stop to actually take pictures of her with the phone and left her, and she died. The police spokesman Gordon Bassam said this, it was tragic to watch. The fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. The Wichita police chief Norman Williams had even stronger words. He said, that's crazy. What happened to our respect for life? So Jesus then continues this story. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey, he came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. One of the hated, despised, no good for nothing, Samaritan. He's moved with compassion. This word literally speaks of one inward, like your organs that are moved, trembling, deeply moved with pity. He felt compassion. And notice what he did, verse 35 and 34 and 35, and he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So here you have the Samaritan, and he is moved by compassion. He doesn't ask, hey, are you a fellow Samaritan? Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Are you a Roman? Who are you? No, it doesn't matter who he might be. He's a person in need, and he's moved by compassion. And he gives him the very best medical attention that was known in that day. He takes wine and uses it as an antiseptic to kind of clean out that wound so there's no infection. And then he uses olive oil and he puts it on there so that healing process can start. And he puts bandages to to protect this man and his injuries. And then notice what else he does. He loads him up on his donkey. This guy's on a trip. It's not like he's just walking around like I have nothing to do with my life and just see what I can do. No, he's on a journey. He's probably got appointments. People are expecting him. He's got deadlines. He's like, wait a second, there's something more important here. And he loads this man up on his donkey. You see that? And uh, he brings him to an inn. And notice he takes care of him. He just doesn't dump him there like, hey, listen, I got to go, but this guy's in rough shape. And furthermore, he spends the night with this guy. He's on a journey. Was this part of the plan? No, but that doesn't seem to matter. And on the next day, he took out two denarii. See that in verse 35? And gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So uh, a denarii is a day's wage. It was estimated at this time that 
one-twelfth of a denarii would cover your stay at an inn. So do the math. One denarii, 24 days and nights, right? Two, 48. This guy hands over enough to cover about two months' stay at this inn. It tells you just how beat up this guy was. And you see such great compassion sacrificing his garment, his resources, his time, comfort. I tell you what, this guy is like grace personified. And then he makes this statement, and this was what uh, a standard formula for guaranteeing a debt. I will repay. If it costs you more, when I come back, you've got my word. I'll cover these expenses. And I want you to know everybody is completely silenced and in shock of what Jesus is reporting. And so Jesus says this, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Did you notice how Jesus reversed the question that the lawyer asked? The lawyer asked, hey, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, hey, which of the ones proved to be a neighbor? See, this guy, he's all sizing folks up, whether or not they're going to be neighbors, right? But Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? And this guy, man, he just, he can't believe he's going to say this, but he does. Verse 37, he has no choice. And he said, the one, notice he can't even use the word Samaritan, just like, oh, no way. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said simply, then go and do the same. The one who showed mercy, why, that, that would be the one. And, and Jesus said simply, then go and do the same. I want you to know that uh, this man, this scribe, he's like, that is an impossibility Everything Jesus has said is something that I really can't fully do. And to make matters worse, he sees himself as even more unrighteous than the Samaritan that he hates because he would never do that. And the Samaritan did. And he's just like beside himself because Jesus is calling for perfection. That is an impossibility. There's no way. And that's the whole point. You're going to need a complete change of heart. You're going to need God to do a heart transplant in you if you're ever going to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. If you're really going to truly love your neighbor as yourself, as a way of life, God's going to have to change your heart and give you a new heart. And That's exactly what God does. You see, by using the law to show our great need, it shows us our great need for God, his grace, and the transformation that only he can bring. That's what God does. He literally changes our hearts when we will believe in Christ. Notice like Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you will believe 
God will give you a new heart. You will be saved from your sins. You will be a new creation. And this isn't like new information. This was promised in the new covenant, like in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Listen to these words. Moreover, this is the promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see that? God will give those who believe, who love him, who trust in him, a new heart. A heart that is now capable of loving God with your heart, soul, strength, with your mind, to actually start loving people as neighbors, to love them as you love yourself. But only God can do that. And, and I know this. I mean, I remember when God did a transplant in my heart back at the end of my first year at the University of Oregon, where I came to understand that indeed I was a sinner that missed the mark. I wasn't loving God I didn't really care about people, at least the way I should, right? I had all sorts of sin on my account, and that's why God sent me a Savior, Jesus. And I put my faith and trust in him. And what happened is, like, I slowly, and it's a continual work in progress, am learning how to love God with my heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's God who is, through his Spirit, giving me a heart of flesh that actually can start being concerned about other people. The only way you're going to break out of this chain of self-centeredness, the destructive patterns of your sin, is that you receive a new heart, and that's exactly what God brings. And with this new heart, God's Spirit will direct you. So when I'm getting off in the wrong direction, like, maybe I should do... uh Uh-uh. It's like the Spirit of God steps in like, not this, Grant. No, this way. Go do this, this direction. Why? Because he has given us his Holy Spirit. He is guiding us into holiness, and he is bringing about in our life the ability to do as Jesus has said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're asking, well then, well, who is my neighbor? Why, your neighbor is the one who is near to you. It's the one who is in need. And so let me ask you, how do you respond to people? For this scribe, it was complacency. He could really relate to the priest and the Levite. But I want you to know for the Samaritan, it was compassion. And if you want to know, if you really want to know the real condition of your heart, ask and answer this question. How do you respond to people? Compassion, you actually care, or complacency. Means to an end, or I could care less, or they're often in the way. Where is God calling you to be a neighbor? In 1973, there was some research done at Princeton Seminary by two guys, Darley and Batson. They had a very interesting experiment they were going to do with the students receiving all their theological training And that is that they were told, uh, these students, that they need to prepare a message on the Good Samaritan. They had them all in this one particular room, and they said, okay, uh, you've you've had your chance to prepare. They were all ready to go. 
And they said, you need to then just cut across campus and then go and deliver that message. And they gave them the location of where they're to go. Um, what they didn't know is that uh, these two researchers had actually hired an actor who was dressed up as someone who had just gotten beaten to a pulp. And he was groaning, coughing, and he was going to be on the direct path of the seminary students who were going to go give their message on the Good Samaritan. In some of the cases, they told the students that, hey, you're running a little late, you need to get over there. This is what their research found. This is sobering. 90% of the late seminary students who were going to deliver a message on the Good Samaritan walked past and in some cases stepped over the man they saw who looked like he was about to die and in great pain. And they went and they gave their message. And I tell you this, friends, because it should not be this way, right? You see, our love for God, the new heart, be translated into some love and some compassion for people. And so I just want to ask, who will you be a neighbor to? I want you to know that ditch between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho, it's pretty, it's wide, and there's a lot of people in it. There's that girl that was taken advantage of by her high school date. There's that um, man who has completely lost his way. There's the college kid that just is completely disoriented. And there's several folks that have just completely lost their way. There's that person that libel and slander have completely demolished their character. There's folks that have lost their health, others who have lost loved ones. And they're in the ditch and they're hurting. I want you to know, like, in our church, that's why we have, like, grief chair and Stephen ministry and regeneration, because we want to actively be involved in helping people. And if you got needs, you want to be a leader, come on, just tell us. We've got opportunity. The problem is this, friends. There's all these hurting lives everywhere, perhaps even sitting next to you. There's just not enough good Samaritans to go along, go around. So how is your heart? What we need to do is we need to go to God for a new heart. We need to guard our heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to actually grow our heart, to expand it, to get past fear and self-centeredness. And we need to give our heart, to give it to those who are in need. I want you to know, you can't meet every need, but you can meet at least a few, right? Ask God for you to do for at least one what you would really like to do for the many. You see this Samaritan's deed of mercy, I want you to know why it's been memorialized and for generations. And no act of kindness and neighborly love is overlooked by God. And that's because it's the presence of Jesus that gives us a heart to be a neighbor to someone in need. Let's pray. Lord.